0: Every generation has a clear-cut favorite party game. A game that you had better be decent at if you wanted to avoid a public shaming session that would have made Mao Zedong proud. In my day, it was N64's GoldenEye. And I still have fond memories of representing with dual Destovies in the stacks. Depending upon your relationship to video games, the party game of your heyday may have been Mario Kart, Halo, or Call of Duty. As far as I can tell, the game of choice for get-togethers today is the latest iteration of Super Smash Brothers. For those who have never played the game, it gets its popularity from two factors. First, you pretty much just have to mash buttons, which makes it really easy to pick up and play. Secondly, the game brings together characters from across the video game world, allowing us to finally answer the completely unnecessary question of who would win in a fight, Link or Mario. Although, let's be serious for a moment here. One has a sword, bombs, and is skilled with a bow and arrow. The other is an unarmed plumber. Seriously, why doesn't he at least get to bring a wrench with him? In my own family, I always find myself utilizing one of the versions of Link, while my boys alternate between Kirby characters, Pokemon, and the children of Bowser. Before I move on, I do want to mention that more players need to have some sympathy for Bowser. The dude is a single dad of five children. The only way he's going to be able to afford college is if he takes over the Mushroom Kingdom. My daughter, proving that gender norms are difficult things for kids to break, always picks one of the few girl characters, despite the fact that she has only played one or two of their games. Each unlocking of a new character from a new gaming world with different fighting styles and weapon sets elicits excitement as they wonder how it will fare against the family's meta-character that has been serving court in the same way that I was able to do once I figured out the best locations to leave the proximity mines in the facility. The events of 1066 and the decisive Battle of Hastings remains popular for perhaps the same reasons. It is a historical event that is particularly easy to pick up and understand as the battles and timelines are not only incredibly clear cut, but it's written up in six easy-to-access sources, including the Bayou Tapestry, which is the medieval equivalent of a side-scrolling video game. The story of 1066 also brings together characters that previously only existed in separate histories and kingdoms which were far apart from each other. Harold Hardrada was a Norwegian Viking king who had first made a name for himself murdering Italians for the Byzantines. In the first battle of the fateful year of 1066, he squared off against Harold Godwinson, a classic example of a chivalric English knight. Godwinson emerged victorious, only to face off against the French Norman ruler William the Conqueror, in a battle that pitted wicked two-handed battle axes versus crossbowmen. Over a series of episodes, we will flesh out each man's backstory, recreating their reason that led them to believe that they would be able to claim the kingship of England during the fateful year of 1066. To the victor went the spoils, as the triumph of William of Normandy meant that it was game over for the Viking and Saxon eras ushering in a new age of rule that saw the lords of England becoming the dominant power on both sides of the English Channel. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This is the first of five episodes regarding the life of William the Conqueror. Episode 1, The Rulers of England, a story of Edwards and heralds. Despite looking predominantly white and quite pale, the peoples inhabiting the British Isles during the 11th century were quite diverse. The two most dominant groups were the Germanic peoples of the Angles from southern Denmark-slash-northern Germany and the Germanic Saxons. The mixing of the two over time led many history books to utilize the term Anglo-Saxon for the pre-1066 inhabitants of England. Unfortunately, that term has been co-opted, and is now seen as a racist dog whistle for white supremacist groups who scour the pages of history for signs to justify their toxic vitriol. Historian Mary Rambaran-Olm explained within the pages of the Smithsonian Magazine that for years scholars of medieval history have explained that the term Anglo-Saxon has a long history of misuse, is inaccurate, and is generally used in racist context. Based on surviving texts, early inhabitants of the region more commonly called themselves English and Anglison. Over the span of the early English period, from 410 AD when various tribes settled on the British islands after the Romans departed, to shortly after 1066, the term only appears three times in the entire corpus of old English literature. And all of those instances happened to be in the 10th century, a millennium ago. The term was picked up and popularized by Teddy Roosevelt, who carried with him a copy of the racist manifesto entitled Anglo-Saxon Superiority, when he and the Rough Riders fought in the name of empire on the shores of Cuba. He wasn't the only famous leader that utilized the term in its negative connotation. In 1943, Winston Churchill openly asked, Why be apologetic about Anglo-Saxon superiority? I myself used to regularly use Anglo-Saxon to identify the British people, but upon finding out that the KKK and pro-segregation groups such as Anglo-Saxon Clubs of America hid their hatred behind the term, it becomes untenable to continue to sanction the use of the word. Thus we'll utilize the terms English or Britons in order to identify the inhabitants of England prior to 1066. It is also important to understand that the British Isles were far from united at this moment in history, with nine separate fiefdoms populating the land. These separate kingdoms had lived in relative peace for twenty years after the violence that had become commonplace during the reign of the Viking lords of England. Ethel Red the Unready was first King of the English from 978 to 1013. He was a mere 12 years old when he achieved top status after the assassination of his elder brother. It is his reign that first sees the blending of this story's three peoples, as Vikings from Denmark regularly invaded the British Isles. Don't worry, we'll examine the Viking rationale for continuous raids in our Harold Hardrada episode. In this instance, however, in 1002, it was King Ethelred who showed his Nordic heritage by slaughtering every single Danish resident on the British Isles. The British royals justified the St. Beast massacre by using classic dehumanizing language in the official royal charter that authorized the slaughter. That charter reads, for it is fully agreed that to all dwelling in this country it will be well known that, since a decree was sent out by me with the council of my leading men and magnates, to the effect that all the Danes who had sprung up in this island, sprouting like cockle amongst the wheat, were to be destroyed by a most just extermination. And thus this decree was to be put into effect even as far as death, Those Danes who dwelt in the aforementioned town striving to escape death entered this sanctuary of Christ, having broken by force the doors and bolts and resolved to make refuge and defense for themselves therein against the people of the town and the suburbs. But when all the people in pursuit strove, forced by necessity to drive them out and could not, they set fire to the planks and burnt, as it seems, this church with its ornaments and its books. Afterwards, with God's aid, it was renewed by me. It took the better part of 11 years, but the king of Denmark got some revenge. That king, Sven Haraldsson, invaded England, forcing Ethelred to evacuate across the channel to Normandy, the location of our story's third set of players. Ethelred and Haralderson fought for the throne, but the final blows would be felled by their sons. Ethelred's heir, Edmund Ironside, was defeated in Essex by Canute, the son of Sven. The two came to peace by agreeing to share the realm. But a month into that power-sharing agreement, Edmund perished, leaving the realm in the legitimate hands of his co-king, the Danish warlord named Canute. Seeking to establish his lineage, King Canute abandoned his favored English mistress in order to marry Ethelred's widow, a move designed to preempt the former king's remaining children from challenging his rule. He then began to expand his fiefdom, adding the throne of Denmark two years later in 1018, before collecting Norway's crown in 1028. Despite our reservations of what Viking rule over a civilized kingdom might look like, Canute's realm was quite peaceful and prosperous. Sean Fitzpatrick, a humanities teacher, tells us that the king ruled England with a careful combination of English and Danish culture, reinforcing old laws and solidifying the monetary system in order to bring political and economic order to England. He was a Christian king, who forged close relations to the faith by marrying his daughter into the leading family of the Holy Roman Empire. He wasn't perfect, however, as was proven by him regularly executing hostages in order to inspire fear in those who threatened his rule. Still, minor atrocities didn't prevent him from traveling and seeing the world. In addition to regularly crossing the North Sea, a journey that took three days so that he could effectively govern multiple nations, he traveled to Rome in order to personally meet the Pope. Fitzpatrick concludes that Canute was not a man whose life swelled with the pride of a conqueror or a tyrant. Instead, his legacy is one of wisdom and even humility, which were not always the fruits of a man of extraordinary political prowess, and power. Familiar relations weren't enough to ensure stability in medieval Europe, however, particularly after King Canute passed away in 1035. In Norway, Harold Hardrada came to power. Meanwhile, Ethelred's sons, themselves children of Canute's English wife, and thus the unfavored stepchildren of the king, made a play for the English throne. Emma, their mother, went on the offensive, arguing that her own child with Canute, a young lad named Agufu, wasn't legitimate, absurdly claiming that the boy's true birth mother had substituted herself for the queen in the dark, resulting in Canute impregnating a lowly servant woman rather than the queen. Unfortunately for the family, Her boy's invasion attempt was of the same low quality that her mother's failing arguments came from. Their cross-strait adventure departed from the ports of Normandy and Flanders. One boy, Edward, escaped to live another day, but Alfred was taken captive and killed during a botched blinding. The man that captured him had been Earl Godwin, father to Harold Godwinson, The man who would go on to become King Harold of Britain. But we aren't ready for that crowning yet. The Godwins were shrewd political players who were remarkably adept at knowing which way the political winds were blowing. Although he was English, Godwin was elevated to the status of Canute's new men after marrying the king's sister-in-law. The eventual winner of the scramble for the throne was Canute's son, Harthacnut. But knowing that he was unable to command the same affection as his father, he split the realm and named Harold Harefoot as England's regent. This is already the third Harold that we have mentioned, but don't bother trying to remember Harefoot, for his rule was fleeting. Godwin used Harthacnut's half brother Alfred as a prisoner in order to buy his way into the king's court in 1035. For his loyalty, he was granted near total control of the southern portion of England, while the Harefoot focused on the colder and more rugged north. But being a regent in medieval England seemed to shorten one's lifespan, as Harold Harefoot passed away suddenly from an illness in 1040. Harthacnut, who had largely ignored England during Harefoot's life, came to England to finally claim a seat on the throne for himself. The cautious ruler arrived at the front of an invasion force of 62 warships. To pay the men for their service, he immediately raised taxes on the people of England, a punishment gifted to a people who had put up no resistance to his rule. It was the first of a number of mistakes that left Harthacnut, in the words of historian Frank McLynn, universally detested by the common people. They didn't even mourn when he died at the age of 24 in 1042, allegedly suffering from convulsions that came after overindulging at a wedding feast. A year before his death, came the first of two alleged promises that were the reason for the chaos that occurred in 1066. Edward, Canute's half-brother by way of the English Queen Mother Emma, was invited to share the throne, something that wasn't unheard of within the Viking world. McLynn suggests that the return of Edward to the throne was a mere smokescreen intended to pacify the English people while enabling him to retain power behind the scenes. The sudden death of Harthacnut left Edward holding the throne, a mere eight years after he and his brother had unsuccessfully invaded in their futile attempt to wrest the throne from Canute's son. Godwin immediately rushed to serve this new liege, despite the fact that he had been instrumental in the capturing and murder of Edward's brother Alfred. But Edward wasn't established, and he faced threats to his rule from all sides. He didn't yet have the luxury of choosing his supporters. In these instances, anyone offering friendship has to be considered, and Godwin showed his immediate usefulness in choosing to ride with Edward as he rode against his mother whom he now blamed for his failed invasion and subsequent exile in Normandy. Over the course of the first year of his reign, Earl Godwin proved indispensable to the crown, allowing his family to massively expand their landholdings in southern England. Edward's reign continued with him ruling from weakness, living beneath the constant threat of invasion from Scandinavia, particularly Norway where a number of claimants wanted to prove themselves to be as great of a man as Canute had been. The young king's fear of failure allowed families like the Godwins to quietly usurp power from the central government. MacLynn, our main source for this topic, portrays the Godwin family as the main thorn in the side of Edward's reign. Each problem that the king faced was either caused by the Godwins, or could only be fixed by them. The family's rise was sudden, with little known about the family's patriarch's early accumulation of power, except for the fact that he seemed to have managed to successfully attach himself to each ruler as they rose, and perhaps more impressively, effectively disembarked before they crashed and burned. MacLean goes on to describe him as ambitious, cunning, and dauntless. While Godwin owed the elevation of his status to Canute, Edward owed his crown to Godwin, so much so that Edward was forced against his will to marry Godwin's daughter. As he himself had followed three leaders who had died in quick succession, Edward temporarily named Sven Ezresen of Denmark his heir until he would produce a son. However, his marriage failed to produce any child, let alone a desired son, something that would directly result in the coming clash of civilizations. Chroniclers gossiped at the time that the marriage was never even consummated, as Edward chose to ignore his bride in order to punish his brother-in-law for the role that he had played in the death of Alfred. The queen would go on to later confess to having retained her virginity. Undeservedly, Edward gained a reputation for being extremely religiously pious, eventually achieving the favored status of sainthood. Thus, Sven remained heir for far longer than anyone had originally expected. McLean, however, doesn't buy Edward's religious excuses for failing to conceive, writing that a careful review of the evidence suggests that there are really only two plausible interpretations of his naming of Sven as heir, either that Edward was gay or that he and Edith enjoyed normal marital relations, in which case either he was infertile or his wife was barren. Given the fecundity of the other Godwin science, the former is more likely. It would have suited those who later prompted Edward for canonization to pretend that the normal marriage was in fact sexless and saintly. Edith indeed encouraged the rumors as part of her own self-promotion. If the historian is correct, the king's intention to not produce a child was extremely problematic as was Edward's tendency to promise things, particularly the throne of England. Naming Sven as his heir was positively viewed as a measure of temporarily placating a potential threat to his rule. But William of Normandy also proclaimed to have been promised the throne of England by Edward. His claim was either mere propaganda or a grave misunderstanding. An heir would have solved everything as would have a carefully crafted legal statement as to what his intentions actually were. But according to McLinn Edward was neurotic, with a tendency of paranoia, and possessed of a fearsome temper that often made him impervious to reason. Historian Frank Barlow claims that he always behaved like one who had been deprived of love. Armed with an elephantine memory for slights and an ability to bear grudges eternally, he comes off of the pages of history as a weak, indecisive, and ineffectual man who loathes all individuals whose talents were superior to his. His personality presented problems for him in dealing with both the Godwins and William of Normandy, For 4 years Edward allied himself to the enemies of Duke William, earning him a fierce enemy until Edward suddenly made an about face that potentially included promising William a chance at England's throne, so that he would be able to shift his alliances to punishing the Godwin family in 1051. The crisis that occurred in 1051 began when Godwin's preferred candidates missed out on all three of that year's major openings within the Catholic hierarchy. The decision was a clear slap in the face of his top advisor. Those that had won the appointments were also clearly not worthy of the jobs that had been given to them. To all those in England, it was clear that the king was finally seeking to marginalize the Godwins but I've watched enough House of Cards and Game of Thrones to know that in politics, you can't just overthrow a power player. Instead, you need to marginalize them, slowly reducing their power in order to avoid an ensuing vacuum that explodes in your face. Edward attempted to thread this needle by steadily promoting Normans to positions of power in southern England. William's supporters claimed this was proof of the secret promise granted to their duke, a method of paving the way for his eventual rule. McLinn, however, warns against this thinking, pointing out that as in everything he did, Edward was singularly secretive, ambivalent, and deceitful, a man divided who was hated in all regions. The slow and steady persecution of the Godwins continued throughout the year, with the king unable to pull the plug because his military might remained stubbornly dependent upon his southern vassal. It came to a head when the king ordered Godwin to trial, a vague command that included nothing of the charges levied against him. Godwin was terrified that he was finally being called to task for the death of Edward's brother despite the fact that 15 years had since passed. Godwin answered the summons, marching alongside a full army to meet the king, who had assembled an even larger force at the Thames. The two armies assembled on opposite sides of the mighty river. Godwin opened the negotiations, asking for an exchange of hostages in order to guarantee safe conduct and a fair trial, but the king refused. After three such requests were all summarily rebuffed, Godwin departed, establishing him in the eyes of the English legal system as a fugitive. King Edward rejoiced, spreading the word that Godwin was unwilling to face him in the courtroom or at the battlefield. The Earl of Godwin, scion of the family, fled across the English Channel, settling in Flanders with his wife and three of his five sons. This included Tostig, who will play a major role in the events of 1066. His two other sons, Harold Godwinson, who we are most concerned with, as well as Leofwin, abandoned England in favor of Dublin, the great Viking port city of Ireland. Edward had managed to finally achieve the status of Supreme Ruler of England, in fact, as well as in title. Unable to met out further punishment on Godwin, he took out his hatred on his wife, confining her to a nunnery stripped of all of her servants and revenue streams. But Godwin was down and not out. Almost immediately, he began to build an army in Flanders, far from the reach of the king. Edward turned to William in an attempt to have another do his dirty work for him. This is the origin of the supposed promise to the Norman Duke, an agreement to bind him permanently to Edward and prevent him from reaching a side deal to join his forces to Godwins and Flanders. MacLynn's theory on the issue is that it is not wholly implausible then, in the context of late 1051, that Edward might have made some informal unbinding pledge that William would be the inside candidate for the throne if he died childless, provided he fell in with Edward's designs involving Baldwin of Flanders. This is a long way short of a formal oath, and to Edward such a promise would have meant nothing. He had already made a similar pledge to Sven, and would do so again to two further pretenders to the English throne. Harold Godwinson, the second-born son of Earl Godwin, took over the family business and its feud with Edward in the summer of 1052, following his elder brother's somewhat odd decision to walk barefoot to Jerusalem. Harold's father, the scion of the family, would pass away less than one year later in April of 1053. Before he died, he assembled an army and came after King Edward. Harold rendezvoused with his father from Dublin, and they again marched unopposed to the Thames. In a repeat of the events of 1051, the two armies stood across from each other, each holding one side of the river. This time, however, the Godwins had the larger of the two forces, and used that as leverage to demand a full and unconditional pardon for any conceivable crimes that may or may not have been committed in the past. The battle began after the offer was summarily rejected, and after a short bout of fighting, Norman soldiers, whom Edward had steadily promoted throughout England, refused to shed the blood of what they believed to be a conflict between kin. Without the Norman soldiers, Edward had no choice but to submit. Godwin was in position to ascend to the throne over the dead body of Edward, but rather than revenge, He merely asked that all charges be purged against him. Edward relented and offered the traditional kiss of peace and restored his wife, Godwin's daughter, to her rightful status as Queen of England. Unable to push back further against the Godwins, the king shifted his perpetual rage to the Normans, whom he felt had betrayed him. He outlawed all normans and french-speaking nobles who had previously pledged their loyalty to him mclinn points out that one obvious consequence of the return of godwin and his sons was that the norman succession project if it had ever existed was now dead in the water as it had been so totally predicated on the exile of the godwins that only an unrealist a cynic or his apologist could pretend it was still in being. In 1053, Edward the Confessor turned 50. Disturbingly, he remained both king and childless. Harold Godwinson was now the primary landholder in southern England, amassing estates that were nearly three times as valuable as the next largest lord of the realm. The family's wealth accumulation only accelerated in the later portions of Edward's rule, as they once again flipped their fortune and became an indispensable ally of the crown once again. By 1066, their family held 66% of all of England, including an astounding one-third of all of its arable land. These holdings were mostly made up of the church's former land holdings, which had been seized by the king, as well as land that made up the nation's key defensive bulwarks, as the ever-paranoid Edward had turned his fear of invasion from Scandinavia to France. In case he didn't have enough enemies abroad, the king fabricated a fear that the church was trying to usurp his power from within thus empowering the once-again loyal Godwin family served to keep both enemies at bay. McLinn hints that Harold Godwinson is probably the most straightforward of the three great personalities of 1066. He writes that he was tall, probably around 5 feet 11 inches or 6 foot. Remarkably handsome, graceful, and possessed of superabundant strength, able to endure great hardships and to do without food and sleep for 48 hours while campaigning. Harold was a formidable warrior and a shrewd captain in the field. He impressed all who met him by his frank and open nature, his sunny temperament, his easygoing self-confidence, his even temper, and his ability to take contradiction without flinching. He was loyal and, if anything, over-trusting. Despite the past history between his father and the king, Harold became Edward's most loyal vassal, and MacLynn tells us that after 1053, the history of Edward's reign became largely the story of the exploits of the Godwinsons, with a shadowy monarch reduced to figurehead status. Relations with the Celtic fringes occupied much of the king's time, and border warfare became as much an annual and predictable affair as the interminable wars in Scandinavia between Sven Esresen and Harold Hardrada. During this time, William sent envoys to London on what were likely espionage missions. Edward intervened in Scotland after Macbeth assassinated their king, and Wales presented a united front against the Britons for the first time in a century. The Godwins featured predominantly in that last issue, as Edward cut the head off of the leadership of Wales by proclaiming Harold's brother Tostig to rule the realm's northernmost kingdom in order to contain any potential threat emanating from the province. The move failed as the Welsh found a sympathetic ally in the Irish, and emerged from across the border to massacre the town of Hereford, butchering all of the garrison soldiers, sexually assaulting the town's women, and seizing their children in order to profit off of them via the filthy practice of slavery. For once, Edward rose to the occasion, calling forth feudal soldiers, which often amounted to summoning peasants with whatever tool that they had available to use as a weapon he put Harold in charge of the makeshift army. The Earl was a natural choice, already establishing himself as England's finest captain. But Harold's brilliance wasn't in his ability to lead the masses, rather it was his political mind that more often made the difference. In dealing with Wales, he sought a political solution to go along with the king's orders to deliver a militaristic message. Harold sought out cracks to divide his enemies and offered one of the pillars of Welsh society a full pardon and recovery of his family's former lands. The offer was taken and the Welsh turned on each other, with Harold merely arriving to finish his enemy off. Despite accomplishing the objective and saving men's lives by seeking a political solution to the problem, Edward was furious and was exceedingly reluctant to accept the eventual agreement that his hand-picked general had negotiated. In 1057, the 54-year-old childless king officially named Edward the Eighthling as his heir. Even if he had previously promised Sven and William the crown, this public promise would have invalidated any earlier whispered agreements. Or at the very least, it would have signaled to the other men that if they wanted England, they would have to fight for her. If this unforeseen introduction of a second Edward seems sudden, you're right, as it took Edward the Eighthling by surprise as well. He was currently residing in Hungary. The Eighthling boy was the son of Canute's prior co-king, who had jointly ruled England for 12 months. When the father passed away, Canute coldly ordered that the man's children be quietly killed in Sweden in order to prevent a rival claimant to the throne. He was informed the deed had been done, but as is true in most good fantasy movies, The King of Sweden took pity on the children and spirited them into hiding. Harold, ever the loyalist to the crown, backed Edward's choice, and Edward, the heir, ended his exile and arrived in England in 1057. But before he ever reached London and the embrace of his co-ruler, the Aetheling passed away under mysterious circumstances. The leading theory of the day was that Harold Godwinson had had him poisoned. If this is the case, it would be quite Machiavellian of him. MacLynn argues against it, however, stating that while the exiles not having been admitted to the king's presence suggest that the Godwinsons had stood between him and the king and then murdered him, but if Harold was the culprit... It seems odd that he should have backed Edward's choice of successor and allowed his protégé to spend so much time on the mission to bring him home. The obvious course for a Machiavellian herald would have been to send an assassin to dispose of Edward while he was in Hungary. Rather, the British historian points the finger at William of Normandy, who had his eyes firmly set on the throne and had a track record of disposing of rival claimants with poison. Still, the sudden death once again left the nation with an aging, airless king who was running out of time to sort out the kingdom's future. In the background, Harold continued to gain land, power, and wealth, and soon emerged as the common-sense choice to replace Edward when the moment came for him to confess one final time. Soon after the untimely death of the Aetheling, Edward acquiesced and named Harold as deputy king, a sort of medieval vice president. Soon both of their names began to appear on royal documents. It becomes clear during this period that Harold began looking forward in time to when he would be named as the next king. Anticipating the day, he began looking to assemble allies, sending his brother Tostig to Rome as well as to Normandy. Harold's big day appeared to come with the passing of King Edward on January 5th, 1066. When death finally came and touched the shoulder of the Confessor, Harold was the lone claimant for the throne already in place within the country. He was the deputy king, largest landowner, and richest man in the country. Furthermore, he was a renowned general. He had the loyalty of England's best warriors, a Viking holdover brigade that referred to themselves as Housecarls. A series of strokes in late December made it obvious that the end was near and Harold had positioned himself brilliantly. He was there when Edward came out of a coma, speaking of an apocalyptic vision that saw England consumed by fire and sword, abandoned to the devil because God, in his anger with the English, would not grant forgiveness for their wickedness. He was there when Edward verbally made his last will and testament, which included a demand for God to repay his wife, Harold's sister, for her loving and dutiful service. Considering that she had still claimed her virginity and had been forcibly imprisoned by her husband, one must expect her to be among the richest in heaven. I will use MacLynn's words to share what happened next. The historian writes, The king then held out his hand to Harold and spoke as follows. I commend this woman and all the kingdom to your protection. Remember that she is your lady and sister and serve her faithfully and honor her such for all the days of her life. Do not take away from her any honor that I have granted her. Edward then made Harold protector of all of his housecarls and foreign servants, asking him to give them the choice of staying on to serve the new king or returning home with full honors pay, and safe conduct. While the statement is vague and modern day lawyers would be able to rip it to shreds, every single English source at the time makes it crystal clear that Edward's statement made Harold his successor. Furthermore, the Witten Gaumont, a council of wise men, met on the same day that the king passed away, and they confirmed Harold as king. At this point in time, the council served as a check on families that sought to rule as tyrants, as they were able to override the prior king's choice. Thus, on January 6, 1066, Harold Godwinson woke up as the lawful king of England. He wouldn't survive as such for long. Join us next episode for a look at the second challenger to the throne, Harold Hardrada the Viking Warlord. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowry at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.